Our Father in heaven, our great God, our King and sustainer, our Creator, Redeemer, and Ruler, You are our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. All the works of Your hands declare Your praise. You do all things well, and great is Your wisdom. You are sovereign over Your whole creation, and Your all-excelling mercy has rescued us from the clutches of sin and death and despair, bringing us into the kingdom of Your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. You have made us sons and daughters and given us a place at the family table. You have crowned Your Son King of the nations and made us citizens of His kingdom. You promise that Your Son's cross will forgive our sins forever. You declare us righteous in the resurrection of Your Son. You have given us new life and new power and new gifts for service through the outpouring of Your Holy Spirit. O great God, we hope in You. For You scatter our enemies and You put the sons of darkness to flight. Protect and nourish Your church today and every day that with holiness and truth we might sing Your praises and proclaim Your glory to the nations. We thank You for making us Your holy army, Your covenant people, the body and bride of Christ. We thank You for making us the church. O great God, our Father, with Your eternal and beloved Son and in the bond of the Holy Spirit, this is our prayer of praise and thanks. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for the light of your, your Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds so that we can understand your word and be transformed by it into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I see no clock here. Does it mean that I may go on as to the spirit leads me? No. Probably not. Jim Jordan told me that I should be concise today. I will try. So the Lord told me to come uh, today to your church and convince you to switch to the three forms of unity, which are much better confessions than the Westminster standards, which you hold to, right? Right? No? Okay. We'll see after the sermon. <clears throat> I know it's pretty unusual to preach from a catechism rather than from the Bible, but I hope that I will in the end preach from the Bible rather than from the catechism. Anyway, I will read the two first questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism. Which is your only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things my, must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life 
and makes my, me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in this joy of his comfort? First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So the Heidelberg Catechism starts with this, maybe, the most important question in human life. What is your only comfort in life and death? I know that objectively, objectively speaking, this might not be the most important question, and the Westminster Catechism is probably, or maybe not even the Westminster Catechism, is probably true, you know, what is the ultimate question. But when it comes to human life, when it comes to our everyday life, this is the question that we often struggle with, right? And often people come to Christ or are converted exactly because you know, of this question. At a certain point of their life, they start to ask this kind of question, what is your only, what is my only comfort in life and death? And the rest of the catechism basically answers these questions, and the catechism is divided into three parts, and these three parts can be found in the answer to the question two. So the first part speaks about sin and our misery. That's connected with sin. The second speaks how we can be delivered from sin and misery. And the third part of the catechism speaks about gratitude, which is the only appropriate, not only response to the deliverance from our, from our sins and misery, but gratitude is basically the only way we can receive this comfort. It's not just a response, it's a way to receive the comfort provided by Christ. But let's start with human misery, and I don't know if I have to spend much time talking about human misery. Uh, I, I know only probably six people, maybe, who sit right here, so uh, whatever I say, I don't address any of your particular situation of life, but from time to time we all feel, feel miserable, right, because of the things that happen to us, or maybe if we're mature enough, because of the things we do on our own. So we, we feel that life is not what it should be. And basically, it is a very Christian feeling, right? We as Christians should feel that there is something wrong with the world, right? So that we can actually repeat what Hamlet said. The world is out of what? Whatever. I read Hamlet in Polish, that's why I can quote him in English. So we know that there is something wrong with the world. We know that there is something wrong with especially the people around us, right? There is something basically wrong with our neighbors. And sometimes we even admit that there is something wrong with us. Things do not fall together as we wish they would. We experience lack of what we need or, we, or loss of what we value. We are harmed by other people. And from time to time, we harm other people. People fail us, we fail them. Evil deprives us of what is good. That's basically St. Augustine's understanding of human misery. 
And actually, you know, okay, no, I won't tell you this. In times of crisis, we often wonder what's the cause, cause of our misery. And maybe we lack some resources. You know, if only I had this or that, a little bit more money, a little bit more beautiful wife, or, you know, a little bit smarter kids, my life would have been much, much better. I could have achieved much more in my life, you know, if only I had this or that. Uh, sometimes we admit that it's actually lack of some knowledge or capability on our side, or maybe perhaps envy, stupidity, or arrogance of people around me. But according to the Bible, you know, the source of all our misery is the fall of Adam. We can blame it all on him, right? That's very comfortable. Uh, this is the source of all human misery. And it's, of course, we know that it's not just about the fall of Adam. It's not just because he, in his childish impatience, grabbed what he had to wait for a little bit longer. And then, you know, all the sin, all the evil, all the, all the misery just happened or filled in the world so that within how many? Nine generations God decided just to wipe out almost all of life from the face of planet Earth. But I think that I'm really glad that these two men who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism uh, decided to address not only the issue of sin but also the issue of or the question of misery. Because I think that when we, often when we speak about the work of Christ or human existence, whatever, we tend to narrow our focus just to sin. But not according to the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, and also the Bible doesn't address only the question of sin. No, the Bible speaks about misery that flows from sin, from the fall of Adam, and all the sins that we have committed since then, because on the one hand, we, we have to differentiate between different kinds of sins. I grew up in a Baptist church, and I was told, no, every sin is equally wicked. So whether you cheat while playing poker, actually playing poker is sin, right? <laughs> or you assassinate the Pope, you know, there is basically no difference between those, these two kinds of sins. But the Bible, from the very beginning, says that, you know, Adam was the deceiver, and Eve was the deceived one. And there is a difference between these two kinds of sins. I don't mention this to justify Eve, uh, but there is a difference between you know, being, being led astray and leading astray of other people. But even though all human misery is rooted in sin, not all misery is sin. And, you know, the obvious book of the Bible to turn to, to understand this, is the book of Job, right? But not only Job. You know, let's see at the life of Jacob, for example, which is a very interesting case, because God said, I loved Jacob and I hated or despised Esau. But come on, we would rather be Esau's than Jacob's, right? Because we, we tend to think about Jacob and his life that, you know, he was really a successful uh, 
Christian, almost like Joel Austin, the ancient Joel Austin. But until the age of 130, his life was more or less miserable, right? I think it was at 130 when he eventually learned that his son Joseph was still alive. So the last 17 years of uh, his 147 years were more or less enjoyable lives. You know, we would all like to retire like this, but we would not necessarily want to go through all the miseries that Jacob has to go through, right? And, you know, he has this badge of faith on his body, which was his broken hip. He had to lead all life through almost from when he was, I don't know, I didn't prepare myself that well. Was he 70? When he, no, 80? 90? Whatever. You might ask, 50, 97, I was close. Anyway, you know, Jacob or Job especially, when we look at their life, we see that it wasn't their sin. They actually, their lives became miserable, not because they were sinful or bad people, but precisely because they were good people, right? And just people. That's why they had to suffer all these miseries. I don't know, maybe you have read this book by this New York Jewish rabbi, what was his name? Kushner, or Kashner. Why bad things happen to good people? You know, if you read the Bible seriously, you should rather ask another question, you know, why good things happen to good people? And in, I think it was Gregory the Great, excuse me for quoting the Pope, Roman Catholic Pope, but I think it was Gregory the Great, that's like more or less 600, A.D., uh, in his commentary to, to, on the book of Job, he says that you know, the, the, the ways of the providence are really mysterious. And, but what is, what is most difficult to grasp is why, why good things happen to good people. A good person, a just person, when things in his life start going well, he or she immediately starts asking these questions, what wrong have I done to deserve this good? That was the mindset of, of, of the people, you know, a few centuries ago. And in a way, it's still a mindset of Christian in Eastern Europe. And you might read George Friedman, The Flashpoints to Understand It Better. But actually, somebody told me that these are the Southerners the people who live in the south of the United States who can actually relate to our situation better because uh, I know it was like 150 years ago, not 50 years ago, or not right now, you know, that you, all your wealth collapsed. And your wealth collapsed. Okay. I, I don't want to offend anybody. Nevertheless, all human misery is rooted in sin, but it's not always sin. And... and and the misery of Job, he, he had to suffer the misery precisely because he was good and just. And it was Satan who attacked him, right? And that's why, why we read in the answer to question why, one of the Heidelberg Catechism that, you know, our misery is because we are miserable or we suffer misery because we sin, that's for sure, but also because we live in the power of the devil. 
I mean, in Christ we have been rescued, liberated from under the dominion of, of, of the darkness, but still Satan attacks us. You know, in a way, that's why we cannot actually speak about natural disasters, right? Or suffering, misery caused by natural disasters. Because we're in the middle of a war. And if we want to take the book of Job more or less literally, that's what it says. Now, in, if something, something bad happens in your life that looks like a, being caused by a natural disaster, it's actually Satan that's behind it. Or God himself. Who knows? You know, it's, it's hard to tell, actually, when things like this happen to us and uh, it might require some wisdom, wisdom. And even Job... Okay, no. Secondly, the deliverance from our misery. That's really problematic because usually we, we have a problem with, you know, the deliverance from misery. Uh, and we are usually very skillful and creating in creative in inventing ways of consolation. Uh, usually it doesn't end up well for us. So, for example, Adam, when he felt miserable after he fell, what, where did he start to look for comfort in his misery? In blaming God and his wife. This is easy, right? And we often do the same. And we think that, you know, when we can shift blame on other people. And sometimes it really works. That's why people try to do this. Cain killed his brother. Because basically his brother, his just good brother, was for him, that's how Cain perceived this, the source of his misery. And that's why he had to wipe him out so that he wouldn't feel miserable anymore. Lamech sought revenge. Nimrod started a new civilizational project. That's what you, know, you have been experiencing in the States recently, actually, right? New civilizational project. Uh, we went through this seven years ago, so I can teach you how to actually behave and react to this new situation. Uh, people think that, you know, this new civilizational project actually can free us from misery. And that, that's what basically communism was about. That's what the French Revolution was about. That's what... Is this, is this recorded? Being recorded? Okay. No. Later. Lot got drunk. That's easy, right? But, you know, I, I would like to stop for a while at Lot because alcohol is actually, that's the Bible tells that God gave us alcohol so that we might get comforted. Right? Alcohol fills our hearts with gladness and joy. Uh, but, you know, the straw of Lot, you know, how, why he drank. And you know that Lot and Noah, these are two different stories. Nevertheless, God, even though the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about the only comfort, I don't think that it excludes these other comforts that we could call secondary comforts, like alcohol, or, let me say, tobacco, or friends, or good music, or good book, or even good movie. You know, these are the secondary comforts that God gives us, and we should really accept 
the comfort that comes through them, but we should never forget that these are secondary comforts that uh, point to the only or the ultimate comfort. Now, these secondary comforts only convey the only true comfort through us through this means of grace, let me call them this. What kind of comfort the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about? Uh, you know, this word comfort itself is a really weird word. And I think it was on the first things webpage when uh, one woman, I think her name was Betsy Childs, she posted something on the Heidelberg Catechism and comfort. And she, she says that comfort is a really strange word because, uh, you know, we have synonyms and antonyms, but this, in this case it's a controny, because it's a word that has two meanings that usually they are contradictory or exclude one another. So on the one hand, we can speak about, okay, let's call it physical comfort, or comfort that comes from the secondary comforts. Uh, and then we have this, what we could call consolation for grief and anxiety. And uh, these two can rarely coexist together. Usually we seek, seek physical comfort, even if our, when our misery is caused by sin and not just fatigue, physical fatigue. But often these two kinds of comforts, they do not coexist with one another. And, you know, it's obvious from reading the Bible and from reading the history of the church that uh, people can get, be really, truly comforted, spiritually, let's call it like this, comforted, even though physically they are very, very much fatigued, right? Either by their physical state or just weariness. They, so this is not, even though, yes, God communicates this ultimate comfort to us through this secondary comfort, through this means of comfort, we should never be satisfied with this secondary comfort, with this means of comfort. And it's like, you know, coming to the Lord's table. Now, it should never be enough for us to eat the bread and drink the wine, right? Yes, we can eat the wine is good. We can be a little bit cheered up by the good wine. If the bread is good, it's the same. But we know that there is something much more. The bread and wine, they point to something much more important. And through them, God actually communicates to us something much more important. It's the same with comfort. And it's also good to remember that this is the comfort not only in life, but also in death, right? And by stating this, I, I, I think that the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, they really reminded us about something very important. When they speak about comfort in, not only in life, but also in death. Uh, death, the last enemy, meets also those who belong to Christ, right? So we are comforted not by being liberated from death, but actually we are comforted by Christ in death, or I would say because the sting of the death is sin and we are freed from sin, we might be even comforted 
by death, by dying, which is not easy because of sin, but yes, Christ makes not only our lives, but also our deaths fruitful and comforting. What is the source of this comfort? Of course, this is Jesus Christ, and uh, because he purchased us by his precious blood. So yeah, that's our comfort, that we do not belong to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ. And, you know, as we start to gain this knowledge of ourselves and of our sin and of our misery, that's actually really comforting. Because the better we know us, the truer we know us, the least we want to rely on ourselves, right? And the more we want to depend on Christ, the crucified Christ, and, you know, it's just the message of God's, yes, justice, but his love, basically, and also the risen Lord, which delivers to us the message of, you know, God's really, really favor and good intentions, but especially his power over sin and human misery. Last but not least, uh, gratitude. What is gratitude? According to Peter J. Lightheart, to thank God means to focus our attentions and trust on him. That's from this really expensive book, Red Cover Gratitude, $50 or something. Uh, to thank God means to focus our attentions and trust on Him. And, you know, I think this is a really profound statement, and I am saying this not just to, you know, tease Dr. Lightfoot a little bit, which I like very much and enjoy very much, but, you know, when we, when we think about trust, what is trust? You know, that's why I think we should rather speak about trust in Christ than faith in trust in Christ, right? That's, that's the point of James in his letter. Devils, demons, they believe, they have faith, and so what? We as Christians have trust in Christ, and because of this trust, and how, we, how, how can we know that we trust Christ? Well, because we follow him, right? Trust involves following of Christ. It means that we follow him, and we, we go behind him, and... Well, but this is the problem with trusting Christ because we know which way he will lead us to the eternal glory and happiness. Unfortunately, you probably have visited churches like this. Or maybe you know, maybe you have been blessed so much that you never visited a church where they would sing Psalm 23, skipping the you know middle verses. So, yes, green pastures, still water, and, you know, a table, a feast, on the other hand, and no valley of the shadow of, uh, of death in between. This, this is the kind of Christianity that we, we might want to join from time to time, but this is actually really false gospel, because it doesn't involve following Jesus. It's, it's more like being beamed out of the green pastures straight to the on the other side of the valley. But, yeah, this is trust. So, the only response to the consolation or comfort that we find in Christ 
is true gratitude, but true gratitude actually involves trust, and trust in Jesus means following Jesus wherever he leads us to. And that's also an idea that, that we can find in many Christian writers that to, to be really thankful, to be really grateful, means to accept the gift bestowed on us, right? We cannot just say, oh, thank you, Jesus, and that's it. We need to accept. How can we accept this gift of comfort or, or consolation or peace from Christ? And I have already mentioned, you know, the secondary comforts, but I think that we can, we can be truly grateful, which means truly receive this comfort, which means uh, truly follow, trust Christ and follow him, uh, First of all, through the word and sacraments, right? This is how this comfort is really communicated to us. That's why we call them the means of grace or the means of comfort. But we also receive them through communion with Christ and his body. We cannot find any consolation running away from the church. Unfortunately, that's what people often do. But we can also receive this comfort through songs and stories, right? Let's think about songs for, for a while. Peter, no, it's Paul, who writes to the Ephesians, I think it's chapter 5, he says that, you know, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and because in this way you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And who is the Holy Spirit? He is the Comforter. That's how it works. It's the same with stories. When, when, we, when we read the book of, uh, well, the letter to the, to the Hebrews, for example, this is, this is the problem there, right? Paul or whoever wrote the letter says, uh, don't give up. Don't lose your confidence. You know, just persevere. And what can endure the hardships, what, whatever they were caused by. And, and then he says, Consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider the leaders of the faith. And then who are the leaders of the faith? Who's Jesus? And then, then he, he gives us these snapshots from the lives of what we call the heroes of faith, right? So that we can recall their lives, not just the end, but also their whole lives. And, and be comforted by the story of Jacob, whom, for example, who, whom God loved, and he hated Esau. But we know what Jacob had to go through, right? We wouldn't want to be Jacob at the age of 10, right? Being bullied by his brother Esau. We wouldn't want to be Jacob at the age of 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 unless, you know, he gets really 130 years old. But yet, you know, consider the life of Jacob, for example, and it will help us to understand, you know, how God in his, you know, mysterious providential ways leads us through this life. Uh, we don't know how exactly he will do this, but we know that in the end we will be with him. And I think that this is especially, you know, this, this double vision that the stories of the heroes of the faith communicate to us and this double vision is really important for us. On the other hand, on the one hand, we have the vision of Christ crucified. 
which assures us of God's compassion, right? Of his love for us, of his favor. And that's why Paul writes to the Romans, you know, if God gave us Jesus, if God delivered or handed Christ over to this death for our sake, you know, how shouldn't or wouldn't or couldn't he give us up, he give us everything that we really need to eventually, in the end, enjoy the presence of the triune God. On the other hand, we have this vision of Christ resurrected, which assures us of God's faithfulness, now of the true immutability of God. God is faithful and he keeps his promises and he will keep his promises even though sometimes it doesn't look like he would. So it is, it is a vision of joy and it is the vision of glory which exceeds any current hardships and pain and disgrace, any misery that we can ever suffer. And for this, this joy and this glory, it is worth to endure any misery. It was worth to endure any trouble and pain and this and disgrace. And this is basically the message of the letter to the Hebrews, I think, at least. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father want to thank you for uh, the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism and how they reminded us about our misery but also about the comfort that we can receive in Christ and especially want to thank you for your son Jesus Christ who died for our sins so that we might be uh, liberated from, from our, our miseries and live a grateful and trustful life uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.